With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Coming up on this week's show with the ultimate add-on for your Sinclair Spectrum. Hands-on with the Atari VCS. And the man behind the music of Tomb Raider. We chat to Nathan McCree. This week's show is brought to you by Retro8BitShop.com, the place for all your retro needs. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 208. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And hopefully we're not overcompensating too much. We are, we're trying our best to sound perky after a weekend in Ireland. Yeah, I think <laughs> I turned green in the car on Sunday. Um, <laughs> as green as the um, Emerald Isles. <laughs> I literally opened the room into the studio and Dan was sat there and he was like, I've only just started feeling well again. <laughs> it was a bit of a large weekend. Um, we were out for Amiga Island, um, obviously a big computer show that happens in Ireland once a year. and The lovely little town of Athlone. Probably about 60 per 70% of it was spent in bars and restaurants, I've got to say. Sounds <laughs> well, fantastic. well, that's what you do in Ireland. You know, it's, it's great fun and it was great to see people from all over the world. Yeah. We had we had somebody fly from Australia yep. just to come to this Amiga Island show. That's crazy. And, you know, there was Americans there, there was a Dutch, there was a Germans there, oh, Polish. It was fantastic. Great little get together. Got to give a shout to uh, Kenny as well, Kenny O'Toole, who um, picked us up from the airport and took us back there as well. I know he's a listener to the show and um, really looked after us that weekend. And uh, yeah, next next year's already been booked as well, so it's going to be happening in 2021. Um, an incredible start to the year, and there is more to come. Now, we've been looking at our events calendar. It's already building up for 2020. I mean, we're going to be obviously one of the biggest of the year, Play Expo in Manchester. Uh, preparations for that are going on right now, the 9th and 10th of May, right at the start of the summer season. And then back over to Norway for Retro Messer. Yeah, so Retro Spill Messen has changed into Retro Messer. And what Metro Messer is, is it's a celebration of TV, film, cosplay, comics, but also retro gaming. All sorts in there as well. That's happening on the 20th and 21st of June. Um, you're going to be missing one of your favourite bands to come see it? Yeah, I am, unfortunately. But I'm really, 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 really <laughs> excited to be going to Norway. It'll be one of my first abroad trips with yeah. Retro Hour, so uh, come and say hi. I and can't who, wait. Who are you missing? Uh, a band called My Chemical Romance. Uh, uh, welcome are... to the Black Parade. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, I know my stuff. Uh, no big loss in jail. You'll, you'll enjoy Norway. Cheers, mate. <laughs> and then a new event as well, Flashback 2020, that's happening the weekend after, which is a celebration of all things retro. We're going to be doing some hosting there on stage doing talks as well that's going to be in Holland that's going to be massive yeah so that's happening on the 27th and 28th of June there are more that we're talking about as well that will be announced when we get confirmation but you can check out all of our events so far for the year if you want to come along and check out the Retro Hour Live and some amazing retro events all of those in the events section of our website at theretrohour.com now, we may have a few new listeners because, uh, you know, we are in a nice little article here and uh, our friends from Retro Gamer who've actually done um, an article all about retro gaming podcasts. Yeah, it's really cool because it's like a summing up of the kind of the full history of retro gaming podcasts, actually. Yeah. They start from the very beginning and then they go into like Retro Noughts and then mm. Retro Asylum, all yeah. of these guys. And it's just fantastic to kind of see everybody shining in their own 
individual area, but also some tips on anybody who wants to start up podcasting. You know, what the hardest things to do, how to get cheap microphones, how to get it set up. Because when we started, you know, it was really budget. And now we've finally grown a bit. Still budget. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, if you're doing the takers down, there that is was a... <laughs> like eyebrows raised to still budget. <laughs> yeah, if you're doing to make your own podcast and takers down, then all, all the tips that you need are here as well. But yeah, I mean, it's awesome. They cover the community, 10 pence arcade, maximum power up, arcade attack, get a shout in here as well. So, I mean, they've actually done, you know, um, like five pages here all about the retro gaming podcast scene. And, and big up our GDDS. They didn't get a mention, but they're a great podcast. Absolutely. Well. well, I mean, there's loads of podcasts out there, so many great ones too. Um, and obviously, you know, this is a nice little summing up, but there are a lot more out there too. So definitely worth a look if you get out of this month's edition of Retro Gamer magazine. Now, before we get into this week's news stories, and we have got a great guest coming up this week as well. Now, one of our favourite games of all time and the biggest series of video games to ever come out of the UK, obviously Tomb Raider. Yeah, oh God, Tomb Raider was just a legendary game. And we talked to Nathan McCree, the guy who actually composed the Tomb Raider music. And if you remember Tomb Raider 1, yeah. the music was kind of... It was a bit spread out, wasn't it? And it would just happen when certain incidents happen. And, like, it's fantastic how he created an atmosphere with that game and uh, create attention as well. I was going to say, I think that makes it really memorable, though, but you've just hit the nail on the head. It makes it's the atmosphere mm. of Tomb Raider 1. You know, when you unlock something or when you walk into a new cave or a new tomb. <laughs> and it was just, you know... Obviously, I'm not going to do an impression of anything right now, but all that Go music's on. just... I'm not doing it. <laughs> do, but, all, do, do, do. but all that music's just flooding back to me right now. It's just so iconic as well. And I think so many people, you know, if they hear it, they hear that kind of like that puzzle unlock, you know, chime and stuff like that. I don't know exactly what it is straight away. Well, well, Nathan has basically done the sound for Tomb Raider 1, 2 and 3. And yeah. he's also done the Tomb Raider Suite, which is a Kickstarter. And mm. in this, he's done recordings at Abbey Road Studio. He's got musical notation in it. Uh, you know, they've kind of made the scores and he's just got some announcements on this show about new performances and uh, new deliverables as well. So this is going to be really interesting. The backstory behind the incredible music of the Tomb Raider games. And we're going to have a competition for you to win some exclusive signed goodies as well in just a bit. So stay listening for that. Now, before the news stories, there's been some good ones this week. Let's give a huge thank you to this week's supporter. And this is the amazing Retro 8-Bit Shop. Now, they are the place to go for all your retro needs. So we're talking, I mean, you've got the website open in front of you, Joe, covering all kinds of systems. I mean, they've got parts and expansions for your classic systems, new and old expansions, great deals on retro computers and consoles, and you can pick up retro games at bargain prices on here too. Now, they actually use only trusted vendors, and they've got both set prices and auctions. So mm. you know the thing, if you go to some of the other auction sites, you don't know who you're buying off. Yeah, absolutely. And what I really like about this is you've just touched on it there is the amount of it's just like a huge library. You just think of any games console, you click on it and there's going to be products on there. Yeah. Anything from game controllers to games, absolutely fantastic. And you know on eBay people list stuff higher and higher and yeah. higher and it kind of drives the price up. I've not seen this reasonable prices online for a long time. Yeah. So check it out guys. Absolutely. So if you're fed up like we are of those high eBay prices and the fees as well and you want affordable retro games and hardware for a massive range of classic systems, check them out right now and of course you'll be helping out this podcast by doing that retro8bitshop.com now speaking of this week's news stories let's start with another long lost game it seems like we get one of these a week at the moment yeah it's crazy isn't it it's just like the stories behind them as well are just like they're so like unbelievable like oh so and so's <laughs> found this game in his attic but this is another one we found a game well we've not found a game but a game coolie skunk has been discovered 
in Japan in Akabara in Super Potato, a really, really famous shop. Yeah. They've got the BS X cart, which is the like the downloadable satellite cartridge for Super Nintendo back in the nineties. Yeah, because it was like a service they, they ran out there. Yeah, wasn't it was it? like yeah. a service and okay. you'd get like downloadable games on there. Uh, which a lot of people have done ROM hacks for now. There's a couple, I forget the names of them, but there's a couple of Zelda games which were like, um, you know, alternative versions with like slightly different dungeons, but they use all the assets from those games. Right. And, you know, you downloaded it onto the cartridge and back then you just had like an, I think it was like a limited time to play it. But obviously people still have these on their cartridges. And essentially what there was was for, I forget how much it was, but it roughly worked out about $500. In Super Potato, in Akabara, there was one of these cartridges with just... Uh, it just said, like, unreleased Coolie Skunk. And literally, a group of people got together, pulled it together, bought it, and there's a full game, Coolie Skunk, that never got released on That's there. That's crazy. And this Absolutely game crazy. looks really well developed. Like yeah. like the Akira one we were covering the other day. I'm just looking at it at the moment, there's, like, three layers of parallax, and mm. the drawings on it, and the kind of pixel art fantastic the animation on it is really really nice yeah um and then the guys who got a hold of it they've they've very kindly uh dumped the rom wow uh online so you can go and play it now so it's available now for people to play um from what i understand though they've just put the first three worlds i don't know what that means i don't know if that's the first three full levels or could be several levels it could be several levels like five levels per world or something but it looks like an absolutely it it looks like an awesome game no idea why it didn't come out or anything like that i only know the story behind it but it looks amazing. It's cool when they do that because I mean, there's nothing worse than when you read stories about, you know, kind of prototype games and stuff that get found, but then they get into the hands of some collectors who don't want to share it with anyone mm. else. That's never good. But the fact these guys have released it, I guess it's free, is it, to download? Yeah, I'm assuming okay. so, yeah. Yeah, cool. So Coolie Skunk, if you want to get hold of that, a NES game you'll have never... Is it SNES? Super Nintendo. Yeah, Super Nintendo. Super Nintendo yeah. game you will have It kind of reminds before. me of, like, Titus the Fox or, like, oh, you know yeah. that period where you had all these Sonic clones that were yeah, coming out? Yeah. yeah, I was trying to say the word for it earlier on. You're these, I, I can't say animal... Animor- oh, An- anamorphic, is Yeah, it? something Animor- like that. All these cool mascots, <laughs> like... Is that when, like, animals take on human characteristics? Yeah, that's okay, the one. Yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of them for a while, though, wasn't yeah, there? Yeah, After Sonic, so... Uh, yeah, it's really cool. If you want to get hold of the ROM, we'll put a link in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, a system that we talked about before, the O-Droid. Now, I remember talking about that, God, right at the beginning of this. Yeah, so I think they had an O-Droid handheld, but it was more of the kind of Game Boy-style O-Droid. But this is the O-Droid Go Advance. So so I think it's it's kind of replicating a Game Boy Advance style. Yeah, it looks a bit like the Game Boy Advance. You know what it really reminds me of? It reminds me of the Neo Geo Pocket. Yeah, 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 the layout. But yeah, there's a video emerged online of like the final testings for it so I don't think it's out yet but it's kind of like videos of people testing it out to see how it plays and I was watching the video and they were running Final Fantasy 7 on it and it looks smooth yeah it's know? got a 786 megahertz so you know it's, it's, an it's, it's got some kick, pick, yeah. kick in there yeah and you know the thing is what looks cool about this I mean so far obviously it's just a video of somebody playing it so you never know what's going on behind but it looks pretty legit but what's really cool is the price tag. It's only $55. Often we talk about these things and it's like, oh, they're $200 and stuff. I think $55, is a, if it is legit and it does play really well, is it's a reasonable price for one of these machines. Yeah, and you can add stuff on. So it's got a GPIO port and um, mm. there's kind of different areas where you can expand it out, which you really wouldn't expect for a product this cheap. But also they're talking about the kind of systems um, and platforms that they're going to yeah. be able to do. And that's like the... Ataris, a Sega Game Gear, 
uh, Game Boys, Game Boy Master Advance. System, yeah, yeah, NES, PC Engine, uh, PlayStation, Sega CD, and then they've got the PSP on there as well, which is really cool, That's and PC cool. Engine. So yeah, I don't know. Right now, just reading that, it just it looks like value for money. It looks like it plays really well. So we'll see when it comes out, I guess. Well, these boards are, you know, these kind of tiny little arm boards, aren't they? Mm. You know, like the Raspberry Pi, that kind of thing, which um, these chips are pretty powerful now. And they can run yeah. all of that, you know, generation of hardware. I think I find that they generally run quite well up until around the the N64. Yeah, you know, kind of like your, your Pandora's boxes, you know, your arcades and stuff. Yeah. You know, I've played a lot of them. One of my best friends has got one. And you, you go on the N64 and you go on the PS1 and they are, they're just trash. Like the arcade stuff, the emulation on them, is great, and you go on the SNES and the Sega, and it's perfect. But like I say, this this is playing PS One, yeah. so yeah, it looks pretty hopeful. Yeah, and like I said, for fifty five dollars, yeah, can't go wrong for that. Can can't you? go wrong. Yeah, I think these things are just going to get cheaper and cheaper. You know, eventually we'll mm. have like a a ten pound really cool ultimate <laughs> handheld emulation. Yeah, device, not a cheap you know? one, which is just putting out like mono sound. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm but sure you, you could get a ten pound one on eBay, and it's shocking at the moment. Yeah, yeah. but you never think to get like you know the the cases made and the buttons and the speakers and the screen. You think you know for fifty, they can't be making a lot of profit of that. No, oh, no, well, yeah, no. Hopefully, they're just hoping people will bulk buy them, you know, yeah. like retailers and stuff. I'll probably, you know, if I, if I see one around, I'll get one. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I go out my way to order one, but if I saw Yeah, one, like going on the website and paying for shipping. Yeah. Fees, I think the expansion figure, if I could do some mad hacks on yeah. it, then maybe. Yeah, that's why you want in game or something. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, $55. I reckon that's going to be out at the uh, end of this month as well. End of January, I just thought oh, that was ages ago. It's still January. It's still January. Right it now. feels like it's like January the 70th or something. <laughs> how, how long this month is, it's ridiculous. Now, of course, we did have uh, CES a bit earlier on this month that everyone's been talking about. And um, there's this great little roundup, actually, on PC Mag. Now, they had quite a bit of time playing with the Atari VCS at CES because they were actually there demoing it. And actually, there's been quite a lot of videos mm-hmm. um, showing it off on YouTube, actually. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people, we talked about it. I mean, we've talked about the VCS a lot on this show. There was a time when people were accusing it of being vaporware because it had some delays and all that. We've always been on the side of wait and see. Yeah. Rather than yeah. putting it down, it actually turns out that, you know, this is a real product now. It's been demoed, it's running, it's working. And PC Mag actually got about an hour playing with it by the looks of it. Now, their sum up at the top is um, the Atari VCS won't be competing with the PlayStation 5 or the Xbox Series X, but is an interesting new console nonetheless. Now, it looks like there's actually a couple of different versions of this. Now, if you check out the photos in this article, They've got two different models. And what I quite like about it is the fact that they kind of use legacy Atari names. They've got the 400 and the 800. Oh, okay. You know, okay like, yeah. like the computers yeah. were. So starting at $249.99, you've got the Atari VCS Onyx 400, um, 4 gigabytes of RAM, an AMD Ryzen R1606G CPU, um, 32 gigabytes of internal storage, and you can play games on there. Uh, um, 1080p at 60 frames a second, it says, and it can stream 1080p content. The next step up from that, it's only a few dollars more, actually, $279.99. Um, you get more storage on there as well. It can stream 4K content and play more games in 1080p. Yeah. And if you look here, they've actually got different decals that you can put on. So <laughs> they've got, like, you know, wood they've grain. They've got the one. old wood grain on there, haven't they? They yeah. have. You can have a plain black one, make it look more like the Vader model. You can even have, you know, a, a bright pink stripe on the front if you want, or a red one. And it actually runs on a Debian Linux distribution. Okay. Now, they've got an Atari in-house built user interface here as well. And they're going to bundle it with 100... Did they demonstrate the in-house user interface? Uh, yeah, I think they were showing it off. They don't really talk much about what it was like in here. Because what are... I've seen is I've seen demonstrations of Fortnite and stuff right. like that. And what a lot of people were saying was it does Debian. 
but also you can boot it into Windows yeah. and run Epic Launcher and stuff, which makes me think, you know, they're saying here that they've got 100 Atari Vault Steam games pre-installed. 100 Atari Vault games pre-installed. Yeah. What stops you just getting the Steam package or something and doing it yourself? I don't see what the... Bu- what like the bonus features unless they have a really nice interface like the mini models mm-hmm. where you can load your thing in yeah. it's it's a custom interface it's nice is if there's video of that available i'll be like ooh i haven't seen much but at of the that moment yet. i've seen a lot of windows videos on it well know? i mean this is a pc it's yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, that's what I mean. It's yeah. like a PC in a fancy case, but yeah. if it had that nice interface... Which I'm sure it will. They've yeah. got an Atari-built user interface designed for accessing the games on the couch, it says. And it's going to have 100 Atari Vault games pre-installed, but also they're going to have um, an Atari-centric subscription to Antstream, which, of okay. course, is a retro gaming streaming service with another 1,000 games on there as well. Okay. So you're talking a decent library of classic Atari games. But obviously, like you mentioned then, this is essentially, you can run Windows stuff on it too, which is the other half of it. People have been talking about the fact that you can actually run kind of mid-range pc games and there's been talking about talk about people running stuff like fortnite and borderlands 3 on here as well um it's not going to be like a top-end gaming pc for this price but you know your minecraft and stuff like that you'll be able to run yeah it's it's interesting because i'm just thinking like you know you mentioned these are the rivals at the beginning i'm just thinking like who is going to be the rival to this because it's like, yeah, I you know, you know what I mean. Like the minis, they obviously have rivals, which are the other minis coming out. But this one seems like something totally different. It's its own kind of like market, isn't it? But I don't know. I'm getting the sort of kind of vibe I'm getting from it is kind of like people are going to use it for kind of PC gaming. It's a nice PC case. Yeah, but <laughs> PC, I can't imagine PC gamers are going to buy it. So it's going to probably be for like your everyday somebody like myself who's really into gaming, but has never taken a leap into PC gaming and it could be a little bit like, oh yeah, that's that's kind of cool. But then, Let you know, they've got let, this... Let Ravi, you know, have a go on it and kind of change a few bits and stuff. Mm. That's kind of like the vibe I'm getting But then it. they've got this custom motherboard with Atari printed on it and stuff. So maybe, you know, like the Atari guys are really, really going to be into that. But yeah. Oh, and PC Mag is saying here that their kind of summary of it is that it's kind of uh, going for that weird kind of oddball niche the same mm. market that would have bought the NVIDIA Shield TV or the PlayStation TV. Okay, yeah. That kind of market, <laughs> look what they say here. Eventually, they reckon it will be the same kind of techie wizards that will buy it that will eventually just modify it into a home theatre PC or Plex server or a Bitcoin miner purely because they can. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I could have summed it up better, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, it is. A, you look at the price and, I mean, people have also said, you know, for that price, like $249, $279, you're kind of getting into... You're into Switch territory there, for example. Yeah. Mm. And by the time the PlayStation 5 and the new Xbox come out, the previous-gen consoles will probably fall to about that price. Yeah. So they're really competing price-wise head-on. But, I mean, if you look at it as a pure PC, I think $249 for actual PC of that spec. Yeah, yeah, Ryzen's, a, Ryzen's yeah. a good chips, yeah. Um, but I'm also thinking, like, if you look at, like, Tommy Tallarico's in television one, that's yeah. got exclusive titles, and then that might have an appeal to buy these games, where this one, it's like, if you just going to bundle it with some old Atari titles. Maybe, hopefully they've had a clean-up or they've had some kind of, you know, way that you could share the scores between everybody. There or, isn't a system seller, essentially. Yeah, There's yeah, not going to be any sort know. of, like, this is Halo for the Atari VCS or anything like that. Like they're, they're just Which is it. out there. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they've just bundled it with, like, essentially 1,100 retro games from the Atari. And it does feel like... Which have been sold about a million times before in packages. It does feel like wasted power if you're going to be... I mean, you're not going to pay $279 to play Pong. 
Well, yeah. some people might, but... <laughs> but the fact you can do a lot more... I mean, it would make a nice little media piece scene. Like you said, the fact that you've got this cool box and stuff, but... It, it looks nice. It's, yeah. it's here. I just want to see more kind yeah. of interface, more menus, a bit more details of the Atari side of it, you know. And you can either supply your own Bluetooth controllers, or they've actually got... I mean, th- I think we did talk about this when that video came out, their own Bluetooth controller that looks quite similar to an Xbox controller, actually. They say it's a, it's a good controller. Yeah, though. it's got yeah, a good yeah. review. So apparently it's going to be out in the spring, they reckon late spring this year, so um, we'll keep an eye on that. And I would actually... I think it's been really interesting. They're going to sell it in their GameStop and Walmart, it's saying here as well. So they're going for, like, the mainstream. Again, like you guys just said then, I wonder... Who they're aiming at? Who is going to buy this? Well, it seems like streaming is a big focus of it mm. as well. So maybe, yeah. maybe this new streaming gaming market. We'll see. I guess yeah. I can't, like you say, your mums and stuff aren't going to be buying it for their kids, are yeah. they? They're going to be buying switches and stuff. So we'll see. Let's talk about something even more obscure. Here we go. What about this? The ultimate expansion for your ZX Spectrum. <laughs> now this thing is awesome. Now this is an expansion called the MB03 Plus. And apparently there's a bit of a legacy behind the name. But this is from a guy um, from the Czech Republic. Um, his name is Jan Kusira. And he's been a Spectrum fan for a long time. I mean, going back to the days when he lived behind the Iron Curtain. And he was actually one of the guys behind a lot of those Specky clones. Yeah, because in the Soviet Union, you know, everything was state-owned. So yeah. kind of you'd have these weird Russian Speckies coming out of nowhere. And, yeah. Well, back in 86, apparently he got his own ZX Spectrum uh, Plus 2. And then, he's been a lifelong Spectrum fan. You know, there's been lots of these kind of individual adapters that have been brought out over the years. You know, SD card readers, sound expansions, mouse and joystick adapters, video improvement cards and that kind of thing. But the problem is with the Spectrum, you've only got one expansion. Puts on the back. So what he's done is essentially rolled his own. And this is a box that's got pretty much any expansion for the Spectrum you could want, all in one box. Oh, nice. Is this um, FPGA-based, then? It is, FPGA. Uh Ah, so they can can basically program it to be what it wants to be. You can keep improving it as as time goes on as well. Now, they reckon at the moment only 25% of its capacity has been utilised. So, you know, (laughs) there's a lot more stuff they can put on here. But, I mean, you know, starting with the list of the things it currently does, it's got a sound interface on there as well that lets you use um, some games that use general sound. And there are some supported ones on there too. You can play mod files. It's oh, obviously cool. a popular format on the uh, Amiga and PC. And apparently because these are all in, kind of seen as individual devices, um, this article here on Indie Retro News, they're saying that you can actually play a mod in the background and then get on with playing a Spectrum game, for example, because it'll take care of it. And it's got like compact flash and micro yep. SD, so you can use those as hard drives, I guess, or load stuff from there and update all the firmware and you can, yeah. well, you can do that over Wi-Fi, an optional Wi-Fi module that will also let you get your specy online, I so guess. So this too. replaces like the Div MMC? Yeah, st- wow. all of it. Okay, this is a, an ultimate beast. You've got two USB ports on there as well, so you can use a USB mouse. It's got a mini jack stereo sound output, um, a DB9 joystick port. It's actually powered by the Spectrum, so you don't, you don't even need to plug it in the wall. That's crazy. And it's got a cool little display on top as well, like an LED like kind of matrix kind of thing. And apparently, by default, that'll show like the, the volume, a bit like a, a volume meter for the, the mods and stuff that you're playing <laughs> on it. So, And it's got a real-time clock built in if you want to expect it to keep your time. <laughs> so this looks really good as well. It looks like a nice solid expansion, all in this compact little box. And the, the motherboard looks really tidy as well. So I think that's an awesome thing. And the fact that it's FPGA... Like you said, and they're currently working with loads of different partners trying to get loads of extra stuff crammed in here too. And it works with them, um, any revision of the Spectrum hardware. Yeah, there's a great photo here, which is, says then and now. And it's basically then is like, 
all of the old boards stuck in the yeah. back, like all stacked up together. And now it's just this nice, clean board. <laughs> well, apparently, I think it looks like they're making these by hand at the moment. There was only 15 units um, at the time this article came out. So I guess there's probably a bit of a waiting list. Now people are learning more about it. But that's awesome, you know, seeing a solution like that, where that's always been a problem, I think, with retro systems when loads of cool expansions come out. Yeah. But you, you, your classic hardware has maybe only got one port on it that you can plug it into and you've got to kind of choose between which one you have. And this seems like you could eventually, I mean, if there's still 75% of the FPGA left, you could put all sorts of stuff or on just, there. just have pass-throughs. Yeah. That's what you used to have, yeah. Exactly, you wouldn't even need them with this. So, uh, yeah, really good. The MB03 Plus Ultimate, if you want to check that out. Now, before we get into our competition, giving you a chance to win some amazing Tomb Raider goodies, let's give a big thank you to this week's supporters. Now, you'll know that the Retro Hour podcast has been going for over four years now. What you might not know is quite how much work actually goes in behind the scenes. Now, this is not going to be a look how hard we work, woe is us. I was thinking actually coming down in the car. Um, last weekend, before we went to Ireland, I was up till one o'clock in the morning editing the podcast. And then, yeah, and that was after like a mammoth recording <laughs> session of three or four hours. Well, I think we couldn't get any words out. We were like, bear, yep. bear, bear by the end of it. <laughs> Even worse than usual. Yeah. Um, and then I got a flight at 4am, so very sleep defied. But we got the show out last week. We've, we've had occasions where, you know, Ravi's been on holiday and in the middle of his holiday, he's gone to interview a guest and took time out of his holiday. Yeah. I remember be, going to my honeymoon and being in Manchester Airport at like, you know, two in the morning while my wife got some sleep editing the show to get it out. So, I mean, we do put a lot of work into this podcast every week. And the only reason that we can do that is thanks to your support as well. We, we love doing it. We want to keep doing it every week. But obviously, donations do really help us pay for the cost. It means that we'd have to pay for it out of our own pockets as well. So anything we get back into the running of the show is massively appreciated. And I've actually prepared a couple of our quiz questions for, for you, Joe. Okay. What's a website address to go to if you want to make a donation? Retrohour.com. Whereabouts on the nav bar do you click? You go to our, uh, blah, 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 the supporters section. Yep. Yep, which is in the top right corner. Maybe yeah. left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Not right>. <laughs> <laughs> you got it right this week. And then what service do you use to make a donation? So you can use PayPal and you can donate any currency from as little or as much as you want. And every single penny, as Dan says, does go straight back into the running of the show. Look at that. Three out of three. There we Flawless go. this week. <laughs> and for doing it, you will get a mention in. Bonus question. What will you get in? The very prestigious Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Gold star. There we go. <laughs> Just like this week, let's give a huge thank you to this week's donators. Falco Loffler. Gary Hever. Christopher Forrester. And Simon Buckner, who all made donations into the running of the show. And if you'd like to do the same, all of that's on our website at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into our retro picks this week, and of course our chat with Nathan McCree, let's do this competition that we've got. Now, we've got a chance for you to win some highly collectible, very exclusive Tomb Raider Suite merchandise. Yeah, so Nathan's happily provided us with two amazing items and we've got two listeners that can win these prizes. So first, it's the title music and it's a kind of score sheet. So this is all the musical notation that's been written down and that's signed by Nathan as well. And Tomb Raider Suite Double Deluxe Tin CD. So this is basically like the Tomb Raider Suite but in the limited edition tin yeah. version of the CD. And you can win these, like you said, the signed as well, so you know these yeah, are recorded really at cool. Abbey Road Studios, you know, yeah. really, really cool prizes. So we've got a chance for two lucky listeners to uh, each win, not only the signed score, but also the CD as well. All you have to do is head on to our website at theretrohour.com You'll find that on the front page, all the terms and conditions and the form to sign up are there. We'll leave it open for two weeks 
Yeah, so two we'll, weeks. Yeah, we'll close the send. Uh, it'll be on... No question. No question. Everyone can get involved in this. We won't tax you too much. It's still January. <laughs> so all you've got to do is nip onto our website and we'll close it at midnight on uh, February the 7th and then we'll pick two winners at random and you will get that in the post. You'll find it on our website at theretrohour.com. So Retro Picks, what have you been looking at this week then, Joseph? So I've been playing a game which has been out for a, a couple of years maybe on iOS, but I spotted it on Xbox One the other day on the right. marketplace. An awesome game called Death Road Canada. So for those who aren't familiar, essentially an 8-bit, 16-bit kind of vein of a game where you literally have to run around fighting zombies, finding you know food and water and health and whatnot and weapons just to get through uh on a trip from florida to canada and you know it's very kind of like it's very reminiscent of like your old school kind of um adventure games you right. know where it'd be like do you want to go try and get the car or do you want to try and walk it and if you walk it something really funny and daft will happen like you'd be ravaged by a wild cat or something <laughs> like that but once you get through that part you then have to actually do the level which is you know like a top down kind of like twin stick kind of shooter if you will but okay. obviously you get like weapons and guns and stuff uh, and my wife has been absolutely loving it so we've been playing it on Xbox One it was £5 uh, but I really really recommend it if you just want to play something retro and fun it's very difficult but it's really fun great two player co-op game and you found yet another system that can run Doom <laughs> yeah this is crazy uh, as you know Doom is the kind of test and everybody tries to run it on all kinds of crazy systems from like ovens to fridges and microwaves <laughs> Well, now it's been converted to Blu-ray, and this is actually Blu-ray Java. So okay. this is using the Blu-ray disc as an actual kind of Java player, and they've converted Doom, and it's running at quite a nice frame rate at the moment. And I just find it amazing that, you know, something that's used for menu systems and uh, <laughs> kind of displaying chapters can be used to play Doom. I wonder if they're using like a remote control for the Blu-ray player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's controlled on the remote control. See, I suppose you could actually you know use like the the menu button to select for like fire. Yeah. That's all you need. Yeah, really, that's all you need, isn't yeah. it? That's that's an awesome use of the yeah, Blu-ray menu technology. What next? <laughs> uh, well, I've been looking at a thing called the V Drive. Actually, kind of talking um, you know about the Spectrum before. This got me looking into other Spectrum add-ons that have come out recently. Great little thing here called um, the V Drive, which is a micro drive hardware emulator. Now we know about micro micro drives they were the kind of a proprietary Sinclair format that was so unreliable and they tried to put that in the Sinclair QL okay now you might remember the QL that was kind of Sir Clive Sinclair's uh, follow-up to the Spectrum that was meant to be what he wanted the Spectrum to be the quantum leap a business computer though that no one wanted no one wanted a business computer (laughs) from Sinclair but it did come with that really bad micro drive interface what this is it's an emulator that allows you just to put you know SD cards in there and use them instead um, the plugs into the Sinclair QL, but there is a version as well that works with the uh, the Spectrum. If it's got an Interface One expansion, there are two different versions of it too. So if you kind of got a lot of software that relies on aging micro drives, and you want something that's going to replace that, you know, in the in the modern age, these are really good. Actually, a nice little tidy device, and it looks like um, that classic Sinclair branding on it as well. So now it's on SD. Is it more reliable? I think anything is more reliable than Micro Drive, to be fair. So if you want to get hold of anything we've talked about and also everything else in this week's show notes, we'll put them on our website at theretrohour.com. And of course, don't forget the competition that will be running for another two weeks. And let's give you a little bit of background on the music of Tomb Raider with this week's special guest, Nathan McCree. 
You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Now, we're talking about the legendary core design, working on incredible games like Bubber and Sticks, one of my favourite games on the Amiga, Chuckbox 2, the original Tomb Raider game as well, working with the Spice Girls that I think we need to talk about at some point, Rafi, as well. Let's welcome on this week's very special guest. Welcome to the show, Nathan McCree. Hello, hello. Thank you for being here. Yeah, great to have you here. Now, um, before we get into you know, all the incredible games that you've worked on over the years, I mean, let's just kind of get a bit about your early credentials, what kind of got you into video games and stuff. Do you remember like what got you interested in games in the first place, where it all kind of started? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, quite a long, long way back, really. I, I think it was my brother. He brought back uh, Sinclair ZX80 from school. He borrowed it from the computing department for a weekend and we were like oh great you know let, let's do some programming let's you know let's get a game running on it and i think that was my first experience with you know computing and computer games and then about a year later we bought a Sinclair ZX81 which was a sort of an advanced version of it advanced to to the point that it had 1k of memory which was amazing at that time um and we used to just spend weekends um you know, basically buying magazines which had code listings in them for games and typing them in because that was the only way you could get a, a game to run on that machine. You literally had to type it in by hand. So that was that was basically my first experience with games. I mean, music. I I was I kind of was always into that. Really, my dad was quite musical and he had us you know singing in church choirs from the age of dot. So I was, you know, in a musical family as such. Um, learned the piano from a very early age. Um, as far as the sort of computing goes, um, I actually wanted to leave school when I was about 16 and sort of be in a rock band, you know, I was kind of going down that way and my dad was like, no way, you know, you're, you're doing your A-levels, you're going off to university. And it was like, well, what am I going to do? Because I, I really wanted to do music. And he said, well, you should do something that you can guarantee an income from. So, you know, why don't you, why don't you go into computers? Because, you know, you, you and your brother are always mucking about with computers. So he sort of gave me the idea for that, really. And I did, I did enjoy computers. I enjoyed, you know, the sort of programming side of it. So, yeah, I went off to university and I did a degree in software engineering. And so when I left university, I looked for a, a computer programming job. Um, I moved in with my girlfriend in uh, Derby and just sent out my CV to about 200 software houses. And the only favorable response came from Core Design. I didn't even know they were a games company until I walked in the building and saw all the posters on the walls, and I thought, yeah, oh, my luck's just landed. Were you, were you previously into, like, video game music? Did you have any composers that you, like, looked up to? Well, you know, I'd been playing games, you know, like, like I say with my brother, for about, I don't know, 10, 10 or so years. Um, so, you know, we, we played the original Elite just you know relentlessly every single day we were we were playing that game and, and i think there were a couple of tunes on there um you know all chip based stuff um but yeah you know that kind of got my my ears going and and there were there were several other games um citadel there's a game called citadel yeah, that's right yeah superior software presents citadel and it had like a synthesized voice saying it and I thought that was really cool. So, yeah, I started programming my own sort of sound generators and stuff on the BBC Micro um, and just sort of, you know, trying to make it do some stuff. And, and in fact, for my, I think it was my O-level uh, computer science exam, I, th I think I wrote a music player 
which played some, I think it was the, the Queen of Sheba, you know, and I thought that was great, you know, because it was tons of notes to program in, but I did it all absolutely perfectly, note perfect. And it sounded great, you know, three-part harmony stuff going on. So, yeah, I was quite pleased about that. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess that kind of got me into, you know, programming, uh, you know, music on computer systems. So when you got to Core, I mean, I heard your first job was working on a music engine for the Mega Drive. Yeah. Um, the Mega Drive, I mean, it's very well regarded, the, that Yamaha chip in there. How did you approach making music for that system, and what, what did you think of it? I mean, writing the software itself was, um, I, I was basically doing the, the user interface, and I was working with a guy called Sean Dunlevy, who was doing the all the machine code programming behind it that was actually sort of running the engine. But it taught me a lot about how um, you know those games programmers worked and and the sort of the principles behind squashing everything into the smallest space possible and making it run as fast as possible. So that sort of got my sort of my first sort of bit of knowledge into how games programmers think um, or thought. Um, you know, writing music on it was it wasn't really sort of strange or alien to me. Um, you know, we mapped out a little piano keyboard on the QWERTY keys, so I had, you know, C on the A, C sharp on W, D on S, you know, D sharp on E. So it was all mapped out. So I could kind of... I knew where the notes were. It was like a piano. Um, but the actual sequencer itself was a bit like a fruit machine. We call it a music tracker. And and you've got like barrels which roll round um, a, a certain number of ticks per pattern. So say you've got 64 ticks, you know, it's like an eight bar pattern with, you know, eight beats in each beat or eight ticks in each beat. Um, and, you know, when it rolls round the 64 ticks, you're at the beginning of the pattern again. Uh, and each of the barrels plays a note um, on one of the ticks. So you've got, say, six barrels, so you've got six voices that can play simultaneously, and, and off you go, sort of shifting the barrels round and dropping your notes in on certain quantized beats. You know, it's all really mathematical, really. You know, you know if you want a sort of hi-hat going, you know, okay, that's got to go on every other every other tick. So it's like, space, 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 you know, and off you go, and you just start sort of plugging it all in, really. Well, you ended up doing music for Asterix and the Great Rescue and also Chuck Rot too. Um, you were using trackers then. Did you kind of start to use samples then as well and um, develop the sound a bit more? Right, yeah, yeah. So um, Asterix and the Great Rescue, and uh, yeah, that was the f sort of first one I did. Um, yeah, that was Mega Drive. Um, so that was all just, you know, um, I, I th that was the, the first project where I was really sort of learning what the Yamaha chip could do, learning how to sort of program the patches and making the sounds, and then, you know, working a lot with Sean, with, uh, you know, with the sequencer that we'd written to sort of make it do things that I needed it to do. So I'm, for instance, I'm... Uh, I remember saying to him at one point, look, I want a portmento effect so I can slide between one note and another note. He was like, oh, yeah, okay, right. A couple of days later, he'd programmed that. So I was like, oh, cool. So, you know, you put in a little control code after you've played this note and you can tell the portmento how fast to move to the next note and this sort of thing. So we programmed portmentos, vibratos, 
we worked out how to get sort of delays happening as well, although that wasn't a, a sort of programmed effect, but it was a technique that we had to sort of adapt with the, with those um, music tracker systems. Um, so, yeah, we were sort of constantly developing the music engine or the sequencer itself as we were sort of writing the music. As I, as I wanted to do more stuff, I was asking him to sort of, you know, code it up for me a bit more. Um, Chuck Rock 2 was... Um, it was a, a mega CD project. So that was actually CD music on that. So that was using, you know, Cubase on a PC and hooking up, you know, a load of synthesizers, you know, Roland and Sonic and, and other bits and pieces, drum machines and stuff like that. So that was a completely different ball game to... Um, you know, the music tracker system that we used on the Mega Drive. I mean, on the Amiga, there was titles like, you know, Bubba and Sticks that I mentioned then in the intro, which I love that yeah. game. And that was kind of like, a, it was like playing a cartoon and the sound effects and the musical really tied into that as well. I mean, uh, did, did you enjoy working on that project? So, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, I enjoyed almost every project I worked on. I should point out that at Core Design, there was another guy doing music uh, called Martin Iveson, and he was doing most of the Amiga stuff because he was used to working on that machine and I was doing all the Mega Drive stuff. So we would often work on the same project, but he would be doing one format and I'd be doing the other. Or he'd be doing one console and I'd be doing the other. Um, and sometimes we would borrow theme tunes from each other if we thought it was really good. Um, sometimes we would just write our own music on our own format because it wasn't easy to translate music from one system to another at that time for instance the the amiga was mostly sample based so if you try to replicate the samples that you know say martin was using on that and try and do that on a on a mega drive yamaha chip it was almost impossible uh for example you know he might have used some vocals some sample vocals well you know you just can't get vocals out of a yamaha chip so we would often end up writing our own music simply because it suited that console better um, than than trying to convert, you know, music from another system. So, yeah, you know, Bubba and Sticks was a great project, really enjoyable. Um, I think I did the Mega Drive and a CD32 version. Um, so, again, the, there are two completely different scores for that, um, which I did. All the guys that kind of invent those things, you know, they're, they're crazy, crazy people. And, you know, it's always good fun working with them. You have a lot of laughs. Well, you mentioned the Mega CD there and then the CD32. This was like the time that CD soundtracks were really coming in. Um, how was that change from 8-bit to 16-bit for you in audio? You know, it, it didn't happen overnight. You know, I was already writing music using outboard gear and outboard synthesizers you know before i'd even started work at core um you know and i'd also done a bit of work in recording studios so you know i knew what the sort of top level was working on games was really uh, the, the you know there were and there still is you know several different consoles running simultaneously and you're often working on two or three different consoles you know at, at once it's a bit easier these days because you can convert from one console to another pretty easily because, well, most of them are sort of CD-based these days anyway. So there's not really much conversion going on in terms of audio. Um, but back then, 
it was you you were doing all of them at once so you know i was working on a master system game i was also working on a mega drive version of that and i'll be working on a on a, a pc game that had you know a cd rom so it was kind of gradual over about three or four years that the chip consoles gradually sort of faded out until we were left with you know just the playstation saturn and pc and from then on it's just been you know cd consoles pretty much until you know now it's come full circle again and we're back to you know smartphones with chips and stuff like that in them again um although i haven't done any chip programming for a long time i have to say games were really changing then and especially with playstation titles stuff like fmvs you know intros um and massively big cinematic soundtracks how did you kind of get into the mode when you were briefed about tomb raider to have that grand kind of cinematic sound you know well i remember in 1994 um i was asked to do some music for soul star and the guy well he's called guy actually um (laughs) he came down to see me and he said nathan we need some music for soul star and i'm like okay he says yeah um we, we, we want it to sound exactly like John Williams' Star Wars music. Okay. And I'm like, uh, yeah, right, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's easy, I'll just go and yeah. knock it out. You know? Nice simple one, yeah. Yeah, so that was a, that was a real challenge. Um, but I think that was the first time when I realised that, you know, we, we could be going, you know, big time on this and, and we can start to sound like Hollywood. But the thing that was bugging me about games... Um, was that it was just all, you know, high energy, high drama, danger, dun 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 dun, and it was all just so noisy all the time. Um, there, there never seemed to be any, you know, quiet moments or, or moments for sort of thinking, or you know, reflection or anything like this. And you know, it was just all bombastic stuff. There wasn't. There wasn't any other emotions. There wasn't anything like love or sadness or or, or loneliness. You know, there was there was nothing like that. And I thought, well, you know, if gamers like movies and there's loads of emotional content in movies, then why wouldn't that work in games? Um, and there hadn't really been a game that that I was working on that opened up that opportunity until Tomb Raider. And then I thought, well, this is probably an opportunity where this might work because, you know, we've got a female character, which was a bit unusual, um, and she was on her own. Um, And, you know, first off, she sort of seemed a little bit vulnerable, but then once I got to know her, she was actually quite a tough cookie. And I thought, well, you know, maybe maybe deep down inside her, you know, she is a bit of an emotional girl, um, but she puts on this front and she has to sort of battle hard against the sort of men in the world. And I thought, well, maybe here was an opportunity where I could describe, you know, her and her and how she felt, you know, at at certain points in the game while, while you were thinking of how the hell to get out of this room that you were stuck in for the last two weeks. So that was really, you know, the idea that popped into my head. Is that I, I just thought there was a chance here to sort of put something in that was just a little bit more descriptive than the sort of average blasting away games music. And it was, you know, an epic cinematic soundtrack. Did you ever really tight, like, turnaround and deadline on, on getting it completed? Well, you know, we were, we were chucking out games pretty quickly at that point anyway because we were doing, you know, multiple formats of each game. So we were 
actually producing a game soundtrack every month. Um, and when Tomb Raider came along, it was just another game in a long list of games that we were we were doing. And I and I think I ended up spending three weeks on the music. That was about it. There, there wasn't really any time to sort of put any more in. And I, I didn't see much of the game. So I was guessing a bit, you know, I knew she swam underwater, for instance. I, I, I knew she met a T-Rex, you know, so... There were sort of moments that I thought, okay, well, I need something for that. I need something for this. And then the rest of it, I, I sort of just wrote thinking, hopefully somewhere in the game, this will come in useful. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and after three weeks, I gave Toby everything that I had. And he actually cut up a lot of the music into sort of several parts because it was more useful to him to have sort of smaller segments than have a you know a full length three minute piece. So he was sort of chopping them up, and and he just put in a load of triggers. I think over a weekend, and the game went off to Sony for submission on the Monday. So it was all really really fast. And to be honest, with you, I'm really surprised it worked as as well as it did. And and you know it's great that everybody you know did like it. I think it would have been very different had it not been such a tight deadline. To be honest with you, I don't know whether it would have worked as well because there's something about Tomb Raider, the first one, that that's it's really empty and, and it sort of fits with the game itself. There's, it's like there's almost nothing to do in there. You know, you're running around for ages and it's like, what, what, you know, what am I doing here? You know, and, and the sound sort of does the same. It's like not really a lot going on and it sort of I don't know it sort of works in tandem it creates that kind of emptiness and that sort of loneliness and that sort of fear of you know what's what's going to happen next and I think we were sort of lucky that it all came together like that really yeah because I was always wondering because there's like empty sections in it there's sections with music there's very sound effect heavy kind of sections as well um mm. Was that also because you had lots of FMV stuff on there, lots of textures, and you kind of had to fit it all on one disc, basically? Uh, well, yeah, you know, there was always a um, always a, a memory limitation to work with. I mean, I I I, I remember thinking that there were, there was nowhere near enough music for this game. That was the thing that really concerned me, and I was thinking, well, what what am I going to do because there's going to be a lot of empty space. And so then I thought, well, you know, most of the time she's just running around and all you can hear is her footsteps. And, you know, nothing is happening. So it's like we can't just listen to her footsteps for three hours. So I thought we'd, we've got to make it interesting somehow. So then I thought, well, let's let's make these atmospheric sound effects, which can be quite lush in, you know, how they sound sonically. If we make them a CD track, we can kind of add some really, you know, lovely effects and some, you know, great reverbs and stuff like that and use loads of outboard gear to make all this, all these sounds. And we just have that as like a, well, I say looping CD track because, of course, we couldn't loop CD tracks. There was always a, a gap when the CD had had to go back to the beginning. So basically it was just, it slowly faded in and it slowly faded out. So you sort of hardly noticed it stopping when it started again. And so that's basically what we did. So there's a CD track which is running this sort of ambient sound effect 
Um, but of course, if she steps on a music trigger, the CD head has to immediately jump to the, mu- to the music track and the ambience just stops really <laughs> abruptly. So it's a horribly clunky system. But people didn't seem to mind, you know. Uh, it, like I say, you know, it, it just just seemed to sort of all work somehow. Well, there are always the bits that everyone remembers as well, and I think you're right, because when, when he did trigger one of those, when it did kind of stop, you're like, oh, hang on, something's coming now, and it was that little pause yeah. would often like help to build the tension up, I think, there a bit more. <laughs> Oops, the birds have stopped singing. Yeah. <laughs> Something's going to happen. It's a T-Rex. Yeah, this is going to be bad. <laughs> I mean, you know, working on those moments, how much like kind of input with the level designers did you have to have like with, with Heather and people like that? Yeah, no, I, I spent, um, you know, it would be like a, an afternoon. I would, I would, one by one, I'd go through each designer uh, for each level because there were, you know, different designers on different levels. And I'd say, right, you know, it's your turn this afternoon. And we'd go into the studio and I'd say, right, walk me through your level. And they would take me through it and we'd lay music triggers accordingly to to what happened you know i'd say all oh, right that that happens there so we need something for that because it, otherwise it's really boring um and then we'd work out how those trigger was going to be how that trigger was going to be laid and sometimes you couldn't guarantee lara would walk on it um so you'd have to sort of corner her off somewhere else in a in a corridor and, and have the trigger coming a little bit early and and this sort of thing, because it wasn't so easy to sort of guarantee she'd walk over a trigger in a big open space. So yeah, there were, there were lots of sort of little technical things that we, um, little technical problems that we had to try and resolve. You know, things like, well, what happens if she walks over the music trigger, starts the piece of music, and then they get frightened and they run back again and they walk over the music trigger again? Does the music start again or, or what? Or do we turn it off or... You know what do we do? So then we started working on a, um, a sort of intelligent triggering system, which had a had a sort of memory. So each trigger had a memory which remembered if Lara had trodden on it before, um, or if she'd been to this place before, and the music trigger had happened before. Then then we wouldn't play it a second time. You know this sort of thing. Or if the music was already playing, then don't play it a second time. You know. Um, so we had to sort of introduce this sort of little mini sort of checking memory system thing on each trigger to 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 work out what or, or to yeah to to determine you know what the player had done under what circumstances had they just you know stepped on this trigger. So it sort of got quite complicated in the end, and with subsequent games it got more and more complicated. Well, one of the sets of music that I absolutely adored, and I think a lot of people did, was the menu music, and. Um, right. Just having that, you know, kind of a very relaxed, nice, kind of melodic menu uh, works really well, especially if you like kind of playing really extreme, um, you know, fighting with a T-Rex or something. (laughs) Yeah, you know, um, well, you know, Lara Croft was a, a beautiful woman and I wanted to say something about that and I wanted to, you know, I wanted the gamers to, to fall in love with her really. And, and and fancier you know and you know and I, and I think the music needed to to describe her um you know not just her her attitude um but also her appearance her physical appearance um so yeah you know I tried to make it as beautiful as possible and you know I I, I was I was looking to write something different really um 
And you know, the more the more I got to know Lara Croft, the the easier it got, really. Um, you know, I personally I admired her as a character. I thought, yeah, actually she's pretty cool, you know. So it was that that's inspiring in itself to sort of write, you know, some nice music about her. Well, Tomb Raider two was even bigger game and that uh, took place in several different locations around the world did you kind of look at regional music then local instruments and take influence from that yeah it, that that sort of just naturally rolled out really um particularly because I, I think it's the second level isn't it where she goes to venice mm. i think um so it was like well what what music are we going to have here well you know it was it was an obvious choice. Let's have some Venetian music. You know, let's go back a couple hundred years. Let's look at some, you know, Baroque Venetian composers, and let's listen to what they're doing, and let's write something similar. So you know, so it sounds like Vivaldi when she's going down the you know the canals in the speedboat. I thought, oh, that'd be really cool. <laughs> so that's what I did. I just spent a few days listening to those guys and and just you know it's it's academic stuff really you just you just uh analyze the instruments that they're using the chord progressions that they use um the sort of tempo and then you just plug in your own notes with 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 that setup really yeah so i i actually really enjoyed that and when we put it in the game and you know boom, she got in the speedboat and off she went dun, 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 dun. Was like, oh yeah this is this is just perfect this is going to work you know were, were you guys all surprised about the success of Tomb Raider 2? Because I remember that was the point where it absolutely blew up. And uh, were you under pressure at all to um, deliver more than number one? Well, I think personally for me, I was under pressure to make it better. Yeah, because I was uh, a bit a bit frustrated with how much little time I'd had for Tomb Raider 1 and, and how the music had been added to the game. Um... It, it certainly wasn't to the standard which I wanted. Um, so when Tomb Raider 2 came along, I, th- I knew I could do it better and I, and I knew we could make a better game uh, audibly. I'm not sure that I've, I felt the pressure. I, do, I was just excited that we were going to do it again because it was like, oh, great, now I, can, now I can fix the things that were wrong with Tomb Raider 1. You know, now I can really you know, do, do some good stuff with it. So it was just exciting for me. So yeah, it was you know it was it was just good fun, and and I think all the time we were heading down the route of trying to get close to making an interactive movie. That that was kind of always in our sights, you know. So the cinematic sequences, we were trying to get as close to Hollywood as possible with that, um, you know. But we're we're all so young. We're just in our mid twenties, you know. Uh, you know, trying to compete with you know the Hollywood gurus was yeah a real challenge, but great, great fun. I mean, you, know, you talked about the kind of comparison with Hollywood then, and Tomb Raider too. I mean, it was obviously a massive, the biggest thing in gaming at that point, and it did kind of feel like it was getting to the stage where it was you know taken as seriously as the movie industry, for example. And there was these big lavish like you know launch events and coverage and that kind of thing. Do you ever remember any like cool launch or press events that you you got to go to with that game? I went to a couple of the um, game shows. I think it was ECTS, I think was one of them. And I remember going there and seeing the IDOS stand and it was just a massive pyramid, basically, um, that they'd sort of, or at least this 
huge thing that made look like a pyramid um you know with tomb raider all over it and i think three lara croft models um at the front of it you know pointing guns at everybody as they walk past and i remember thinking then god you know this is actually massive you know it's like the biggest stand in the whole of the you know computer game show it was like crikey you know here we are we made that sort of thing so yeah i think that's the first time it sort of really hit me but i didn't go to many more events really i think i went to a couple we didn't generally get invited it was mostly uh you know the marketing teams and the pr teams they were the people that went to all those events because they were the people that were talking to the press and all that kind of thing a lot of us that were sort of you know actually the, the guys that were making the game we were back at core just going out downtown in derby to the to the local <laughs> pub all together on a thursday night you know that was really our, our life you know we, we were just living and breathing it in fact i remember at one point jeremy brought in a load of camp beds for us all because it <laughs> because he didn't want us to go home he just wanted us to work and and he said they're the showers boys here's some beds and if anyone wants a pizza, you know, just pick up the phone. <laughs> move move <And> in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And literally, we all did. You know, there was 15 or 20 of us um, at that building that we basically didn't leave. We were just there all the time. It was great. Really, really good fun. Well, Lara was seen as like a, a big symbol of kind of girl power. And uh, so were the Spice Girls at the time. And uh, you did a bit of work with them as well, right? Yeah, so... When I left the Tomb Raider project, so that was after Tomb Raider 3, I left Core because, you know, I just wanted to go out on my own. I wanted to try other things other than games. I wanted to get in the music industry and I wanted to try and get into films as well. So I left and set up my own music and sound production company uh, and, and teamed up with a, an, an old school friend of mine who was a sound engineer. And we moved into this little house in... A place called Skidbrook in the middle of Lincolnshire. It's right on the the sort of the flat plains of Lincolnshire. It's in the middle of nowhere, but it was great because we could make as much noise as we wanted. We didn't have any neighbours, so basically we just put the studio in there and started writing a load of music. And we thought, well, you know, let's just let's just do a load of dance music. Let's just try and get into the dance scene. So we were there for about a year, just banging away, uh, um, partying really. And then we got a call from a guy called Peter Barnes, who was the lighting director for the Spice Girls. And he said, we really want to use the Tomb Raider music for the intro to our next tour, which was uh, Christmas in Spice World. And I was like, well, I was sort of thinking on my feet a little bit. And I thought, well, if they use the Tomb Raider music, then I will get no money. So I said to him, well, you know, what do you want to use the Tomb Raider music for? Everyone knows that. Everyone just thinks it's Tomb Raider. Why don't I write you something that's close to Tomb Raider, but that, but that it's the Spice Girls? So we'll put a Spice Girl theme in there, but we'll make it sound like it's Tomb Raider. He said, oh, well, that's a great idea. So that's what I did. So I wrote this track. And um, he, came up to, he came up to the cottage, this big shot from London. <laughs> he came up from London. And uh, came to our little cottage and uh, sat in there with us for a day and we sort of finalised various sound effects that we were going to put on it. Yeah, and then he took it back down to London. He played it to the Spice Girls. They all gave the thumbs up for it. And then he scripted a, a light show, a laser light show with pyrotechnics and all that kind of jazz. Um, it was synchronised to the music every second. 
and we got our tickets our vip tickets and we went down to earl's court stadium there was twenty-eight thousand people there wow yeah i mean it was massive we were front row and uh we were there, you know, sitting down. There's all these girls all around us. I mean, thousands and thousands of them. And then suddenly the lights went down and my tune started playing and 28,000 girls jumped out of their seats and just started screaming. And it was like the most nerve-wracking moment of my life. It was just unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. Oh, but you had goosebumps. Oh, oh. mate, it was just... <laughs> I can't tell you. It was a proper rocket ride. It was just fantastic. Well, when we got to Tomb Raider 3, I mean, obviously there was less puzzles and it was more action. I mean, how did the, the pace and music of the game change then? Yeah, it, 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 it was different. It wasn't as enjoyable for me. Um, there, were, there were parts of Tomb Raider 3 I, I found a bit frustrating musically because, because of that that you've just said. It was more action-based. There were several parts in the game where there wasn't really so much sort of thinking to be done. You were just sort of running around being chased by people and, and having to shoot 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 all the time and so musically i was writing smaller and smaller cues i mean tomb raider one i was writing three minute cues but they got cut into one minute tomb raider two was down to sort of 40 seconds 30 second cues tomb raider three some of the cues were 10 seconds or five seconds long and you know when you write a piece of music that's five seconds long it doesn't really say much. It's just like dun dun dun, and that's it. And that's not really, it's not really very enjoyable to write pieces of music like that. Um, so I, I found it a bit boring, um, and 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 the sort of the mystery and the wonder and the wow factor that we'd been working on in Tomb Raider one and two that was sort of beginning to be lost with Tomb Raider three. There were still some okay moments in it, but it just became a bit more fragmented musically for me, um, and and that wasn't so enjoyable. You know, I like writing stories when I write a piece of music. I like it to tell a story and, and take the player on a, on a sort of musical journey. And I was less able to do that with Tomb Raider 3 because there just wasn't enough time before some baddie walked around the corner and twacked him on the head with some baseball bat or something. Tomb Raider got kind of lost for a while until the new Crystal Dynamics series. So what do you think about those ones? And do you uh, like the soundtracks on them? I actually quite enjoyed listening to Trolls Fulman's uh, renditions for the anniversary. Um, just because it was interesting to hear somebody else arrange my music. So that was sort of fascinating for me to listen to that. I didn't think at the time that it was what I would well of course it's not what I would have done because it's not me but I just felt it was too grandeur for Lara Croft and Tomb Raider you know she's to me she's more uh, minimalist in in sort of music musical terms and so I just found that a bit too grand Um, but it was interesting nonetheless to listen to I really liked uh, Colin O'Malley's score for Underworld I thought that was actually really good um, I like listening to his tunes. Um, I can't say that about the others, <laughs> really. You know, there, there's moments here and there. I think, yeah, that's that's quite nice, and I, and I can't, you know, I can't fault these guys for you know doing a good job because they do do a good job. Um, it's it's just not not my cup of tea. And and the new games, you know, they they are very different. They're, it, it, it's not a, it's not really the Tomb Raider games that we wrote. 
you know, back in 96, 97, 98. I mean, they were puzzle games, but the new games are not really that. I, I don't know. Games these days, they seem to be dumbing down the players a bit. You know, press A to save your life now. Yeah. Press B <laughs> to avoid this monster. I like, don't tell me what to do. Uh, I think the whole the, point, you know, I think the whole point the is new, seeing Lara Croft get her, her legs ripped off, you know. That, that's, in the new that's games, the fun of it. I spend the most time hunting rabbits and crafting rather than actually getting anything done. Well, exactly, you know. So, you know, the first one, the first reboot, where she's stuck on the island, I mean, it, it's a bit miserable, the whole thing. <laughs> it's all sort of dark and dingy and depressing, and, oh, oh, woe is me, and she was all damaged, and it's like, where's the superhero gone? Where's that girl that is guns blazing and, you know, and, and it is exploring these wonderful, amazing places, uh, deep underground and stuff, you know. Where's all that gone? So yeah, it, it just doesn't seem like Tomb Raider anymore, and I, and I and I, I don't really understand why they why they changed the character so drastically. Mm. Um, I, I don't think I'll ever understand that. It's a bit like you know making a game um, where the main character is Clark Kent. Well, who wants to play that? You know, I want to play Superman. I want my I want I want my laser eyes and my super flying speed. I don't, I don't want to just walk around with some newspaper under my arm. So what, what, why did they do that? Well, talking about taking Tomb Raider, you know, into uh, grand things, I mean, let's talk about the Tomb Raider suite. I mean, this is um, a re-recording of the original soundtrack with a live orchestra at Abbey Road Studios in London, concerts mm. as well. I mean, this is massive. So tell us a bit about the, the Tomb Raider suite and where the idea came from and what the concept is there. Well, the, the idea first came to me back in 1997 because I had a phone call from Decca Records who wanted to release the Tomb Raider soundtrack. And I thought, oh, this is it, great, you know, this is my chance. And so I went up to see, speak to Jeremy, Jeremy Smith, and um, I said, oh, Decca Records are dipping on the phone, they want to do the Tomb Raider soundtrack. He said, ah, oh, nah, not interested. I'm like, what? What do you mean not interested? Nah, it's not going to make us any money, Nath, forget it. <laughs> I'm like, joking. Right, so that, that put the idea in my head. I thought, well, if Decca Records are interested, then I must be doing something right. So I've got, to, I've got to get out of here and I've got to try and do it myself. So that kind of put the, the nail in the coffin for me in terms of, you know, staying any length of time with Core Design. And like I say, you know, two years later I left. And since then I started calling IDOS and then Square Enix pretty much every two or three years saying, do you want to release the soundtrack? Shall we release the soundtrack? Shall we do it? Shall we do it? Shall we do it? And every time they just kept saying no. And then in 2014, there was the, the 20th anniversary coming up in 2016. So I got together with a, my business partner now and we talked about putting together a business proposal for Square Enix to do the Tomb Raider suite, which was basically a three-pronged business proposal it was a, a live concert a studio album and a tv documentary it was really the tv documentary i think that hooked them into it and they said yeah okay let's do it so we ne negotiated the contracts and and then in that was signed i think at the end of 2015 and then in 2016 um yeah i started writing it in june it took me three months and so basically i took the cues that were from the original game and, you know, 
like I said to you, some of those are sort of 30 seconds, 40 seconds or a minute long. Well, I needed to make them at least three minutes long each so that each piece was a, you know, a standalone piece of music. So I had to sort of get my head back into Tomb Raider and imagine writing in the style that I would have done 20 years earlier. Because, of course, my, my writing style has changed 20 years, mm. 20 years on. A lot of the stuff that I was writing to begin with was just a bit... Uh, it wasn't quite in the same tone. It was a bit sort of overcomplicated. Um, so I had to sort of rein it back a bit and, and simplify things out and keep it simple. And, and eventually I settled into it. I, d- I didn't think I was going to be very motivated for it, actually, to begin with. I thought, oh, you know, because it's like when you go over old music, you think, oh, God, it's rubbish. I could do it so much better now. So I thought I wasn't going to be motivated. But when when I actually revisited the pieces, I was sort of surprised myself. I thought, oh, actually, I, I do quite like this. And then, of course, when I started writing stuff, well, I was writing new material. So that in itself generates your motivation because it's new. So off I went. I I got the bug again, and I, and I couldn't put it down for three months, and and I, and you know I raced through it, and I really really enjoyed it. And um, David, my business partner, he's also a composer, and so he was sort of like my second pair of ears just to check. He's also a big Tomb Raider fan as well. Yeah, with Kickstarters, there's often a lot of different elements, and uh, there was a bit of delay getting stuff out. But um, do do you feel you're back on track with it now? We've never been off track. We we went into the Kickstarter to record an album at Abbey Road Studios with a live orchestra and then distribute a digital download, a CD, a vinyl and a deluxe tin CD. And on top of that, there was all the Kickstarter rewards, posters, programs, T-shirts. So we had to get into, you know, merchandise manufacturing as well. So basically, we had to learn how to be a record company and a publisher. Mm, yeah. And there was two of us. <laughs> and trying to kind of service 2,600 people um, when you've got emails coming in every day. Oh, I've changed my address. Oh, I've moved. Oh, I've, I can't remember what T-shirt I ordered. Can you tell me anything? Oh, can't you just look it up yourself, mate? You know, <laughs> you know, and all this is going on. And you're trying to, you know, you're trying to learn how, how to, like I say, how to be those entities, which is a ton of work. It, it's absolutely overwhelming. Uh, you know, if we did it again, of course we'd do it a lot better, and we'd uh, our our production line would be a lot more streamlined because everything's in place now. But when you're doing it for the first time, you have to go slowly because if you make a mistake, it can cost you thousands of pounds, and you don't have thousands of pounds to waste. So you have to go slow. You have to double check everything. You have to get on the phone to people and say, are you sure this is right? We're about to press the green button. And do you know what? Several times we were ready to press the button on manufacturing the tin CDs. And had we have done that, we would have lost about £15,000 each time. But just before I pressed the, the OK button, somebody spotted an error and went oh no wait a minute wait a minute the the date is wrong on that and it's right right we've got to change the artwork again and that would set us back another month or whatever um you know because yeah. again everything just goes very very slowly because you just you're just trying to make sure that every t is crossed and every i is dotted and there's absolutely no mistakes you just can't afford to make a mistake and i guess like it's like publishing a book you know you'll you, you'll read it three times but you'll never spot that spelling mistake <laughs> it's absolutely absolutely you know it, it, it that just happens all the time and you know i i'm 
really grateful that we've you know we've made it this far with, without actually making a huge mistake anywhere um, because it, it just could have happened so easily there's just a billion things that we've had to deal with um, and it's worldwide delivery as well which is uh, yeah yeah, yeah you know th- this is the other thing you know because when you start a Kickstarter they say alright you know put in your your postage and packing charges it's like well I've no idea but then it's like well what if somebody makes an order from Germany? What if some guy m- makes an order from Japan? You know, we, we've got to put one price here because we can't put, well, if you're from Japan, we're going to charge you more. Mm. You know, you can't do that. In the reward section, there's just one slot for putting in a postage and packing price. So you have to average it out, right? So you have to sort of guess where most of your orders are going to come from. Well, I had no idea. Tomb Raider's like a worldwide product. I have no idea. You know, I knew, obviously... You know, the UK and Europe is pretty popular, obviously America and Japan. But even that is, you know, a ton of countries in itself. And each one of those has a different sort of price tag getting getting a piece of a product out, out there. Um, so we're really guessing about our postage. And of course, you know, when it did come to sort of delivering that stuff, it's like, well, actually, we can't afford to do more than standard delivery. So, you know, what happens if this stuff goes missing? You know, what happens if we lose some? You know, should we send it registered post? And so you do the calculations like, oh, we can't do registered post. You know, it's another five grand to send this. You know, we, 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 we just can't do that. So then it's like, well, what happens if it goes missing? How, how, how many are we going to lose? What's the percentage? So you're working out all of that, sort of cutting your losses. Oh, well, okay, well, if we lose, you know, 1% or 2% of the parcels, that's a few hundred quid, you know, okay, we can manage that, but we can't manage registered delivery, you know. And, and what's the point? Just to, just to guarantee, you know, 30, 40, 50 parcels actually make it to their destination. So there's all of that to deal with. And, of course, you know, you get people emailing you, oh, you sent out the CDs, but I haven't got mine. You know, it's like, ah, <laughs> oh, here's another one. Oh, what's happened to that, you know? And there's been some thieving postman somewhere that's just, you know, had an early Christmas present. I think that's the thing when you're doing a Kickstarter. I mean, you're learning as you go along, especially when it's your first one. And I think, you know, people need to appreciate that it's, you know, how much is involved in it too. So, uh you know, hopefully, yeah, hopefully you know, when, when people get the product and that, hopefully they're on side and they're satisfied then. I mean, talking about the, the concerts as well, I mean, when's going to be the next uh, Tomb Raider Live? Have you got a date for it yet? We have, yeah. Um, so the next one is um, Saturday, the 24th of October this year. So that's 2020. Um, and that's going to be at Le Grand Rex in Paris. Nice. Oh, wow. That should be amazing. And uh, you, were, you were saying earlier, you know, you might want to... Um kind of release a uh, maybe a, a suite for some of your other soundtracks so maybe we could get a uh, bubber and sticks live or something <laughs> <laughs> well you know i'm ever ever since i left core my plan or you know the advice that i've had from other people in the music industry is get your royalty stream working because that's your that that's your pay packet when you do a job for a commission that's like a little bonus but you need your royalty stream working. And the way to get your royalty stream working is to get lots and lots of material out there earning little bits all over the world, you know, regularly. Um, so it it's really a case of getting quantity out there. And so, uh, you know, o- over the last 20 years, I have just been writing like a madman. I think I've got about well over 600 tunes now that I've written um, and about 30 or 40 albums or something. Um, so what I thought was, well, you know, let's do the Tomb Raider suite. 
let's see if I can make a success of that. And if there's enough of a following, then maybe, you know, I can do some of my other game soundtracks. And there, there's a few guys out there who've, who have said to me, you know, I'd really love to hear Soulstar, mm. you know, with a live orchestra, that'd be great. Or I'd really love to hear Heimdall and, you know, let's do it. And, you know, so I'm, I'm very tempted. And like I say, now I've done Tomb Raider or the Tomb Raider suite. Um, I know what I'm up against. Uh, I, I know how to do it better next time, you know, financially and 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 faster as well, because you know, we, we, we've learned so much doing it on, on this project. Well, Nathan, it's incredible that we are getting to, you know, witness this music live played in, you know, these incredible venues by real orchestras and having your stories about these incredible games that shaped our childhood as well. It's been amazing having you on this week. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks very much. No, I really enjoyed talking about it. I love it. 